This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Equity Mates! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to break down your barriers to investing. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. You set the challenge at the start of the financial year. Let's try and interview all ASX 200 CEOs, which I thought was lofty, but I loved the ambition, and I'm really excited that we've got another ASX CEO uh, today and an ASX CEO that has been right in the you know in the middle of a big news story and we're really excited that we can have him on and unpack it all on the show today. Absolutely, we are super pumped to welcome Zlatko Todachevsky from Boral to Equity Mates. Zlatko, how are you going? Yeah, really good. Thanks a lot, Bryce. Thanks, Alec. Thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So for those of you who haven't come across Zlatko before, he's the CEO and Managing Director of Boral. The ASX ticker is BLD. Zlatko's 30-year career spans oil and gas, logistics and still building products sectors, including CFO for Energy at BHP, CFO at Oil Search and CFO at Brambles. So today we're going to be covering off um, a lot of company basics when it comes to Boral. Have a chat about the recent Seven Group takeover and then also close out with a conversation around people and culture as we always do. So let's kick it off, Ren, with um, hearing it from Zlatko himself. Yeah, Zlatko, we love to start these interviews by having a company leader describe their company in their own words. So to kick us off today, what is Boral? Yeah, thanks, guys. Look, I'll answer that a couple of different ways. So you know, what most people would probably expect is me to talk about the fact that we provide concrete for our customers, we provide asphalt, we produce cement, and we've got a number of quarries that, that, uh, that produce aggregates that are used in both asphalt and concrete. But frankly, we've morphed a little bit over the last 12 months. You know, we defined our purpose more recently as creating a world that future generations will be proud of. And that's ultimately what the company is going to be about going forward. We don't want to be tied to particular materials or approaches, but understanding what our customers need, their pain points and how we solve them. That's ultimately what the company's about. Yeah, interesting. So in research for this, we came across an interesting story about your recruitment process. It seems that it was a classic COVID story. You know, the process was conducted entirely over Zoom and you only met Boral's uh, chair, Catherine Fag, 15 minutes before your appointment was announced. <laughs> How did you find that process? Yeah, look, it was, a, it was a completely unusual process. And I guess I'd been a little bit old school in terms of the, the way I looked at other roles and the way they'd been approached. So I, I had only ever conducted face-to-face interviews for roles in the past. So this was really weird. And it wasn't completely over Zoom or Teams. Um, you know, there were a number of Sydney directors that I had a chance to meet with face-to-face. This is all 
obviously pre-COVID, um, but I had not met Catherine, I had not met Paul Rayner. So the only interaction I had with them was over Zoom through the whole process. And as Catherine said you know, shortly after I was appointed, frankly, I didn't meet her until the morning we announced my appointment. <laughs> we were both staying in a hotel, we both met up, drove over to the office in North Sydney. That was literally the first time we ever met face-to-face. So it was a bit of a surreal process. But I can tell you that um, that what Borrell did with the, the search firm they used was really insightful. You know, they kind of triangulated and calibrated their views through, you know, some pretty incisive psychometric testing, uh, spoke to probably the most number of uh, people that I'd worked with in any process I've ever been involved with. So I think they absolutely did their homework. They knew what they were buying. And frankly, I got a chance to really get to know them as well. Yeah, nice. I think uh, hearing that even CEOs have to go through psychometric oh. testing will make all the uh, grads who, you know, have to do it for their grad roles feel a little bit better. Yeah, well, it's a little bit daunting <laughs> when you first start to do it, guys. But at the end of the look, I'm 53 years old. So you get comfortable with yourself. You know your strengths and weaknesses. So for me, it's just an opportunity for everybody else to get to know me in a different way. Now, Zlatko, if you can take us back to the early days when you took over as CEO, you took over in a particularly tough period. Borrell had suffered six profit downgrades in two years, um, and there was, you know, it was a business that was that was in trouble. Can you take us back to those early days as CEO? What what were some of the big decisions you had to make, and how did you approach turning such a big business around? Yeah, great question, Alex. So, look, frankly, I had a little bit of an insight into the business from you know a company I was involved with um, prior to joining Borrell. I knew the sector, I knew a little bit about Borrell, and frankly, always thought that Borrell had the best assets and really strong capability. But I could never tell why it appeared to be. Uh, always not a serial underperformer, but not optimising what it could do. I could never really unpack what was driving that. So when I was appointed, I, I did what I called a listening tour. I spoke to all of our major shareholders. Uh, I think in the first couple of weeks, I spoke to you know, 50 of the leaders across the organisation. And it was an opportunity for them to get to know me, but also for me to unpack what's on people's minds. What are they seeing? How are they feeling about it? And then we embarked on what I called a portfolio review. I didn't have any fixed views. Yeah, everybody was giving me advice. If you read the press back, then everyone said, well, if you flog the US, then you're going to be fine. I didn't believe that because, once again, I thought there was opportunities in Australia and it hadn't delivered what I thought. I didn't really understand the USG borrow plasterboard business. And, frankly, I didn't have uh, really well-formed views on North America. So we pulled apart every part of the organisation. Yeah, nothing was left unturned. And I made sure that the review that we did was fact-based. Because once again, people were giving me their opinions, but in some cases it wasn't based on facts. So we embarked on, on a four-month exercise to pull apart every part of the organisation, understand how they were performing, look at their headwinds, what customers thought about us, uh, our returns and our potential to make those businesses better. So we then got to October of last year and at that stage I had completed um, the portfolio review And we formed a view at that time that the best performing uh, and probably highest potential part of the organisation was construction materials in Australia. So that first, you know, probably four or five months in the organisation for me was a lot of analysis, a lot of uh, deep thinking about the organisation and really pulling apart every aspect of it. And then, you know, then the, the, the path forward started to become really clear, but it wasn't clear on day one. 
So you did mention there the American business and a key part of your time as CEO has been actually to reverse the North American expansion that was pursued by former CEO Mike Kane. So are you able to elaborate on that a little bit? What, why sell the North American assets? What did, I guess, Boral learn from, from this experience? Yeah, Bryce. So look, if I go back to that portfolio review that we did, you know, my intention coming into the company was not to sell North America and it wasn't to sell USG Boral predominantly in Asia. It was to understand where we've got the strongest competitive advantage and where we've got the potential to continue to deliver strong returns over multiple decades. With that lens, it then became clear that firstly, USG Boral in Asia in the plasterboard sector was a business where we didn't have a right to grow as Boral. You know, we were in a 50-50 joint venture with Knauf, who are the global leaders, and we're able to, um, to finalise a sale w- with the Bavarians in a really short space of time. So I got to negotiate with them one-on-one, which was, which was fun. <laughs> but that was about, you know, solving a couple of problems. It wasn't a business, as I said, where we had a natural competitive advantage and it wasn't delivering the returns we wanted. And frankly, those sale proceeds of a billion fifteen US helped us solve the balance sheet problem. We then focus on North America, and it was clear that building products in North America always had some really good businesses that hadn't delivered on their potential. So our focus started to be, well, how, how do we improve the performance? It felt like there were a series of standalone businesses being run that way. How do we think about any combined value from the portfolio that we've got? And once we had a handle on that, then the question became, are we the best people to unlock that value or is somebody willing to pay more? And we ran a series of processes, firstly on building products, and we're running one on Flyash in North America at the moment. But at the end of the day, Westlake, um, who's predominantly a chemicals business in North America, um, branching out into building products, came forward with a bid that was well in excess of what the market expected um, that, that building products business to be worth. And frankly, it was ahead of what we would have thought that we could have delivered ourselves. So we signed that deal. It was 2.15 billion US. Um, and in coming weeks, we'll finalize what we do with Flyash. But these are good businesses. The question for us is, are we the best owners and can we unlock the value? Or does somebody else see better value elsewhere? So Zlatko, you mentioned there the strength and balance sheet, the um, the sales that you have overseen, the fly ash sale that uh, is likely coming uh, is going to result in an incredibly strong balance sheet for Boral um, and give you the capacity to return capital to shareholders, invest in new businesses or in your existing ones. How are you approaching this decision of what to do with this capital? And um, can you give us a sense of uh, what might be on the horizon? Yeah, happy to, Alex. So back in February um, of this year, we defined and shared with the market what we called our financial framework. So that's all about how we think about the business, the balance sheet, uh, reinvesting in the company, and then how we best return capital to shareholders. And frankly, it really hinges off the fact that we believe that as a company, Boral should be delivering better returns than we're doing at the moment, because that then drives our expectations around the balance sheet and things like that. Yeah, interesting. Just to give you a sense, we when we completed the USG Boral transaction, um, that was about 1.3 billion Aussie that we secured from that. We used part of that to pay down debt and get our balance sheet back to the position that we really wanted it to be in. And then we used about 850 million to buy back our shares because we fundamentally believed that what the shares were trading at was below the intrinsic value. So that program of buybacks was was executed, completed in July. 
Um, at an average, I think it was a $7.01 per share. Now, going forward, we've got the balance sheet in a good shape. You know, we probably have to pay down a little bit more debt if we sell some of the businesses, um, but there will be oodles of surplus capital. And the question in our mind will then become, what's the best way to return out to shareholders? Um, we've obviously spoken with shareholders in the past. We'll continue to do that. But it'll be a combination or a mix of things like a capital return, which you know potentially will have tax benefits for shareholders. It could include further buybacks and it could, could include a dividend, particularly to the extent we have franking credits, which you know, we don't have a lot of today. So, Well, look, as, uh, as shareholders, you love to hear the CEO say that you have oodles of, share, of, of surplus capital. So <laughs> <laughs> love to see it. Look, um, before we jump into having a chat about the recent Seven Group takeover, Zatko, we'll just take a very quick break to hear from our sponsors. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Zatko, at the same time that you were reviewing the Boral businesses, assessing the North American assets, Seven Group entered the share register and slowly started acquiring shares. In May 2021, they then launched a takeover bid and by July 2021, they owned two-thirds of Boral. Um, Can you talk us through this time? No doubt there was plenty of headlines coming through. We were chatting about it on the show. We'd just love to hear, hear it from your side. Yeah, sure. Well, if I take you right back to the beginning, Bryce, you know, I was at the final stages of the recruitment process for the CEO role, and then Seven Group became public about their shareholdings. So he can't think about, you know, what does that mean? (laughs) Um, So I spoke with Catherine Fagg about it, and, you know, she had obviously been in contact with Seven Group. There was nothing untoward behind it. It was nothing more than, I think, Seven Group realising there was such inherent value in the borrow business relative to what the company had been trading at, that they want to take opportunity and advantage of that. And as I've gone out and I've met with a bunch of people since I've started as CEO, including private equity and another a bunch of other corporates, you know, it's been clear a lot of people saw the value in Borrell, but to their credit, Seven Group are the ones that jumped in and took advantage of it. So, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a secret. Everybody saw what uh, potential sat in, in Borrell. Um, but if you roll forward then, you know, they obviously... Um, Crept as they're entitled to do uh, under corporations law. And then, yeah, Ryan called me on the evening of the 10th of May and said, oh, by the way, we're launching a takeover, um, targeting 30%, obviously. Um, look, that was a surprise. But on reflection, it probably shouldn't have been a surprise for me or the board because, you know, they backed their judgment. They saw the opportunity. They clearly liked the strategy and the approach we're taking and saw more value in borrow once again than it was trading at that time. So, you know, I think it's completely understandable that they would want a larger exposure to that. Um, now, we obviously had to do what we felt as borrow was in the best interest of all shareholders. And, and I think the response to that takeover, considering, um, you know, the seven group weren't clear on ultimately what they wanted or the share price that they might ultimately be willing to pay, 
you know, I think the response, the way we ran that was really good. It coincided with a period where we were already in the midst of executing our buyback. So, you know, that, that was a process that continued on. But, you know, once we announced the North American uh, building product sale and the price we got for that, you know, clearly that gave Seven Group the confidence to up their offer to 730, 740 under their structure. And a lot of shareholders sold into that. So they're at 70 or 69.6% today. Um, Ryan's back in, in the boardroom. He's chairing the company these days. He and I talk regularly, you know, multiple times per week. What I can say, completely aligned on strategy, very supportive of the direction and continues to see value in the business going forward. So Zlatko, the, uh, it would have been a p- particularly, I guess, uh, noisy time for you when uh, the existing borrow board were uh, rejecting the uh, or recommending the rejection of the takeover bid. Uh, Seven Group were acquiring shares from the institutional shareholders. And yet at the same time, you're reviewing the business and, and trying to turn it around and trying to keep the team focused on the task at hand. How did you approach that challenge as a new, new CEO and you know really keep the team focused on turning the business around? Yeah, look, I won't shy away from it, Alec. It was a really distracting period. You know, we had completed our portfolio review in October of last year. We'd announced the sale of USG Borrell. We, we announced that we were kicking off the process of North American building products. You know, we were in the midst of changing the operating model for the business in Australia, changing out some leadership roles, and we had already kicked off the process of developing what we thought the strategy for the company um, should be going forward, and then the takeover was announced. So, yeah, it was unexpected. From my perspective, at least, it was unwanted because, you know, we were making really good progress and it wasn't something that we really wanted to deal with at that point in time. But, you know, you don't get to choose the context that you're operating in. So, once again, I think we did a great job on on the response to the takeover process. I don't think we dropped the ball on anything else we're trying to do in the background. Yeah, but we had a lot of people working you know, seven days a week there for for about three months. Um, so we got through that and I'm pleased to say, look, you know, we've now got the clarity of focus on the Australian construction materials business we wanted. I'm really pleased with the leadership team, with the clarity we've got in people's responsibilities. We've got the strategy lined out. Everybody's really clear on what we've got to do. And, you know, despite COVID and a bunch of lockdowns continuing to impact construction, you know, I think we're poised to do some really good things. Mm. It's like as retail investors just seeing it all sort of play out in the headlines, I guess some of the questions raised is, you know, around what does it actually mean to have seven group as a majority shareholder? Does it change anything significant for you? What what does the future look like with them as as a majority shareholder? Look, I, I think the good thing, Bryce, is yes, they're a majority shareholder and they have to consolidate bottles. So <laughs> most of the onus and what they've got to do is is for them in their financial statements, but it doesn't change what we're doing as a company. The strategy has not changed. You know, Ryan is very supportive of that direction. We continue to focus on our transformation program and how we improve EBIT by 200, 250 million. That hasn't changed. The way we go to market, the way that we think about innovation, you know, the sustainability approach we announced last week, none of that's changed. So yeah, we've got a major shareholder, but I think he's extremely aligned with the opportunity we see in Borrell and the direction we're taking. It must feel pretty good as a new CEO. You know, a takeover can go one of two ways. They can take majority control and clear house and change the strategy. But in this case, they've backed you in, backed your strategy and backed your team. Um, It's a pretty ringing endorsement that a massive company like Seven Group is willing to spend so much capital to get more exposure to what you're trying to do. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that, Alec. Once again, I think they're really smart people at SGH, you know, fantastic track record they've had. But once again, I think they saw the opportunity. They backed themselves to take that opportunity where others, you know, weren't willing to do that. But, you know, we've, we've got really strong alignment. You know, I think people like to create stories that there's, you know, animosity in the boardroom or there's discontent, stuff like that. We don't see that. You know, they get to a level of detail that I think some directors don't, but they're, the motivation is all about understanding how we're performing, what the future looks like, where the opportunities sit, and making sure we're making progress on that. So it's a ringing endorsement, but, you know, I think, frankly, that reflects the quality of the team we've got. So you mentioned their sustainability is like go. So it might be a good chance to just have a chat about that. Obviously, Boral is heavily in building materials, concrete, cement, you name it. Um, and you mentioned there you you announced last week your sustainability strategy and at the top that Boral is now about building a better future. So are you able to just elaborate on that a little for us? Yeah, happy to, Bryce. And look, frankly, out of all everything we announced in our strategic framework, that's the that's the one piece that I'm really proud of. Not that I'm not proud of the other things, but if you think about the cement industry, it's one of the largest carbon emitting sectors anywhere in the world. And I say facetiously internally sometimes, you can take two approaches. You can kind of huddle in a dark corner and hope it goes away, or you can view it as an opportunity and really think about how you change your business, change your approach, change your business model to take advantage of that. And I am really pleased to say after a hell of a lot of work in the last 12 months, we've taken the latter approach. So we're taking a leadership position, not just in construction materials in Australia, but globally with the targets we're setting we're committing to science-based targets. We're signed up to SBTI. Uh, we've set ambitious goals, both Scope 1 and Scope 2, as well as Scope 3 emissions, and they're not pie-in-the-sky targets. You know, we spent a lot of the last year working through the pathways of how we take carbon out of our business. Some of those are quick wins. You know, we're doing things like using um, waste streams as fuel at our kiln down in Berrimer in the Highlands. Um, we're at 20 25% waste streams um, today. We think we can get that up to 60%. We're ultimately looking for renewable energy sources. Um, we're working on carbon capture, which is one of the largest components of how we emit carbon um, into the atmosphere today. But we're looking at how do we capture that carbon from the calcination process? How do we combine it with waste streams and ultimately, ideally, embed that back into concrete so it's permanently stored? So we've done a lot of work, but I think that work then gave me and the board the comfort to come out with those world-leading um, objectives that we've announced and feel comfortable that we can do that. So really pleased with the, the work that many people in our organisation have done uh, and the fact that we've gone out on the front foot to set those objectives. I love that, Zlatko. Uh, in a previous life, I worked uh, in the sustainability team at Coles and uh, my ears picked up there where you, when you spoke about waste to energy. Um, we see, you know, Europe, in Europe, it's such a big feature of, of what they do and it's slowly starting to become a thing in Australia. Um, but, but it's great to hear, you know, that you guys are on the front foot about it. I think the cement industry is like 8% of global carbon emissions. So great, great to hear that you guys are focused on it. I guess for a lot of the equity mates community, ethical investing and sustainable investing is is a you know really front of mind at the moment. And it seems like for a lot of the broader institutional investing community, that's the same. As an ASX listed CEO, are you feeling the you know the increased pressure from shareholders around sustainability? I, I guess the crux of the question is. Uh, does sustainable or ethical investing 
make a difference for uh, for ASX listed CEOs? Well, look, I think it's a consideration, Alec. But you know, I'd be lying if I sat here and said that's why we did it. We didn't do it because of that reason. I think we recognise the opportunity. And frankly, it's an opportunity to differentiate borrow. So it just makes good business sense and it has tangential benefits for the community and significant benefits for the community, but aligns us with a lot of uh, both investor and community expectations. So it's absolutely something that we consider, but it's not something that drove us. So Zlatko, you've had plenty of years experience in leadership positions in some of Australia's biggest companies. So let's turn to having a chat about people and culture. How would you describe your leadership philosophy as CEO? Well, look, there's a couple of things I look for, Bryce, and I really want to surround my pe- myself with really great people. Um, you can't do anything unless you've got really strong capability and, frankly, people that are happy to step out of their comfort zone and contribute right across the board. So um, we've got great people at Borrell. We've always had great people. We've made a couple of changes, particularly in senior leadership roles, but it's always about having a great team that's focused on doing the right thing for our customers and for the communities in which we operate. So that, for me, is always going to be important. Um, clarity on expectations is really important. And I've said this a few times in different forums, but when I joined Borrell, the strategy was unclear to me. It didn't lack coherence. You know, we were construction materials predominantly in Australia, light end building products in North America, and then a focused plasterboard joint venture in Australia and Asia. Just that, that lack of clarity for me in, in the strategy didn't make sense. So we spent a lot of time looking at the portfolio and building the strategic framework that we've now got to build that clarity and to build alignment. And the last thing that I look for is, um, you know, when you've got really good people and you've got clarity in what you're trying to do, I, I use this term internally, freedom within a frame. You know, I want to give really good leaders the ability to be able to react and respond when they see opportunities or challenges, but within the framework that we've all agreed. That, I would say, is still an evolving feast at Borrell because if I look at the way the business was run before, there was a lot of freedom. Frankly, it wasn't much of a frame. So trying to bring everybody back in together and build that alignment is important. So the frame's probably going to be a little bit tighter for a period of time until everybody knows what we expect. But ultimately, look, I want to give really good leaders the freedom to run their element of our business in a way that where they can respond to opportunities and challenges and not have, you know, keep coming back to me or the corporate centre to, to make decisions. So they're the three things I tend to look for in, in leadership roles and in different companies. Now, Zako, we mentioned uh, at the top of this interview how your hiring process was a uh, classic COVID story, uh, Microsoft Team and Zooms, but but also the turnaround that you've been overseeing has been a classic COVID story. It's been, uh, you know, not a lot of traveling and a lot of Microsoft Team and a lot of Zooms. Um, how, how did you approach and I guess what lessons have you learned from this challenge of trying to change a culture and reinvigorate a workforce digitally? And what, what can we and, you know, other people trying to run businesses learn from that? Yeah, I think, great question, Alec. I think the um, the inability to travel is a double-edged sword. Look, frankly, I retired from executive life six years ago because of travel. So I am not looking for a lot of travel. But in the context of Borrell, it's been frustrating because, you know, we had, um, we had businesses in 17 countries and, frankly, I couldn't get out of Australia. So to not meet people face-to-face, be able to connect to them in a way that I'm used to, uh, meet with customers and and view the operations, that was extremely frustrating. But when you don't have an alternative, you know, this kind of forum, either phone calls or Zooms, that's all you've got. So you've got to do the best you can. 
And frankly, when we're going through the portfolio review, I was spending a half day with North America every morning just going through their businesses, talking about their performance, talking through products and customers, um, and it worked. You know, we got an outcome and might, might not be as good as you'd ideally want with face-to-face connection and all the, the non-verbal cues you get, but, you know, we got an outcome. So I feel, feel good about our ability to navigate. The cultural piece is a little bit different, though, and, and particularly in a company like Boral where I didn't understand the history or the depth of how people felt about the company yeah, it's dangerous to go away and start saying, well, now this is the culture that we want. So what we embarked on towards the end of last calendar year was the first very, very detailed culture survey that Borrell has done in a really long time. And we had 5,000 people across the organisation contribute to that. And that for me, guys, was an opportunity to really delve into how are people feeling, what are they thinking, you know, where are the opportunities? What do we want to retain and continue to, to foster across the business? And what really came through was that people are proud of the company, proud of what we do, but viewed that we were slow. You know, we weren't as nimble as we needed to be. We weren't as innovative as we needed to be, and we didn't collaborate as much as we needed to. So with some of those cues from that survey, with things that we had observed and based on my views of how I wanted the business to work in the future, we defined you know, our purpose and values, which we launched across the organisation last month. We defined our operating model and, and the leaders we were put into key roles and communication is, is part of that. It's absolutely critical. So, you know, from day one, you know, my first morning on the job, I spoke with the leadership across the organisation and the next morning I spoke with the entire organisation over Zoom. We've continued with regular dialogue using whatever means we can um, and we continue to do that. Straight after this call, I've got another call with, you know, the top 100 leaders. We're trying to do that on a fortnightly basis just to build that alignment. So, oh, look, I wouldn't um, – changing culture when you can't see a lot of people face-to-face is tough, but comms is always important, transparency is important, and staying connected is really important. Psycho, before we move to our final three questions on the future of uh, Boral, just one on on growth. You know, we talk about here at Equity Mates the importance of building a thesis when you're investing in companies, and obviously, a big part of building a thesis is to understand drivers of growth at an industry level, and then what it means for the company. Uh, are you able to sort of just briefly, I guess, highlight what are some of the big areas of growth that you're expecting to see over the next sort of twelve months or so? Yeah, it's a really, really, um, well, it's an interesting question, Bryce, but sometimes it's a vexed question. So people have always said to me, you know, as we think about portfolio actions that we're taking, that we're shrinking back to Australia and we're ex-growth. Frankly, when I look at business, I don't look for top-line growth. I'm looking for bottom-line growth. And anyone can go and buy revenue. That That's not smart. Now, whether that's a good investment and whether you do the right thing uh, once you've grown that revenue base through an acquisition, that's the real challenge. So what we're focused on is how we grow earnings at Borrell. That's the important thing for us. So we've done a couple of things in, in that space. One is we came out in February and we spoke about our um, what I'd say is a really significant transformation objective we've got in the Australian um, construction materials business. Yeah, we delivered 157 million of EBIT in FY21, excluding property. Our target is to deliver 200 to 250 incremental EBIT over the next three to five years. And we think that's opportunity that's embedded within the business. We're not reliant on the market conditions, which frankly are pretty soft at the moment. We're not relying on pricing, 
which in a tough market condition you shouldn't rely on. So it's all about self-help. And it goes back to our thesis around if you run construction materials in Australia as a national business, it unlocks a lot of potential. And I think that potential is, is you know, within our grasp for the next couple of years. We then think about what are the adjacencies and how do we move into some of those adjacencies where we can bring our skills, our asset base, our capability to bear. And one of the really interesting ones is recycling for us at the moment. You know, Alec touched on it earlier, but when we think about recycling, we're looking at how we use our quarries for landfill in particular. You know, we dig up stuff, we crush rock, and that leaves a big hole in the ground. Well, down in Deer Park, we've used the quarry void for cleaner way to put municipal waste into. Yeah, that makes sense for us. It's an asset we've created that historically we haven't been monetizing. We're looking at waste to energy. So how we change our fuel mix down in Berrima from, you know, what was a number of years ago, 100% coal to more waste streams and ultimately something that's sustainable. You know, we see opportunities to make significant money off the back of that. The really exciting one, though, is waste materials. So we have had a couple of recycling centres around the country, predominantly in Sydney, where we take construction and demolition waste, we process that, and then we put it back into either concrete or asphalt. So it's more of a closed-loop circular economy concept. The work that we've done more recently, we, we see a significant opportunity in that space. So we're now working with a lot of property companies, construction companies around you know, how do we manage and support them in their demolition process to take waste away give them visibility on where those waste streams are going. They're not ending up in landfill. We process it and ultimately, ideally, it ends up back in the concrete that they use on their new construction. Yeah, we see a significant opportunity in that space. So that's an area where, you know, if we can deliver on what I think the aspiration looks like, it'll create an adjacent growth area that, you know, for many, many years should create another revenue stream and earnings stream. Zlatko, you were speaking my language there. You're reminding me why I loved uh, working in the sustainability team at Coles. I've actually been to that cleanaway landfill down in Victoria um, and seen your your teams quarrying out out there. So it's all uh, bringing back a lot of memories for me. Ren <laughs> loves but, um, waste. Yeah. <laughs> well, mate, I was on the it's... Coles board, so I love Coles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's let's stop this waste and Coles loving and move to the, uh, I guess, the future for Borrell, both short and long term. We always like to finish these interviews um, with, you know, what's in the future for for your company. So if we start short term, if you think about the next 12 months for Borrell, uh, what's in the pipeline? What should we expect? Yeah, I think what you should be looking for is a really strong focus on execution, guys. If I think about, you know, the last, uh, well, my first 12 months, it was all about those macro moves. So, you know, what should the portfolio look like? What is the culture and operating model we want to develop? Uh, you know, what is the strategy that we want to pursue and, and how sustainability fit into that? They were all, you know, really meaty opportunities that we had to deal with. FY22 for us, and particularly um, the next 12 months, is all about execution. We're now going to focus on construction materials in Australia. We've identified what the strategy framework and sustainability strategy is going to look like. We need to now prove, because frankly, you know, Borrell hasn't got the best credibility in the investment community based on you know, people's experience in the last three to five years. We've got to prove that we can deliver on these plans that we've set. You know, how do we make the Aussie business a hell of a lot better? How do we unlock the value? Because we're organised on a national basis, how do we prove that we can capture some of the opportunities we see? And I think 
you know, we're looking for that and, I, and I'm sure the investment community is looking for that because last year was not about the nuances of how we run the business, but this year needs to be. We've got to deliver, we've got to show that execution and we've got to make progress on the sustainability journey that we've set ourselves on. So Zlatko, in terms of risks, you know, there's always a multitude of risks facing any business, but if you were to narrow it down to just one, what do you think the biggest risk facing Boral right now is? Oh, look, you're right, Alec. Look, we, we tend to talk about 20 to 30 risks that we're always <laughs> um, Name them all. Yeah. <laughs> Journos. I start with that. <laughs> no, nice, but, nice. Look, the, the biggest thing on my mind at the moment is confidence in the construction sector. Yeah, we managed to operate throughout all of 2020 without construction being shut down. Yeah, there were some restrictions in Melbourne through the elongated lockdown they had. And even through the first half of this calendar year, construction continued. What's happened in July and subsequently into August was unprecedented. That, for me, is the biggest risk to the biz- to not only our business, but to the sector and the broader economy, because construction is one of the largest employers. So how do all participants in that sector provide confidence in construction so that we don't end up seeing shuts and restrictions like we've got at the moment? That's the biggest risk, because it's not just the commercial or economic risk. Frankly, guys, when you've got to sit down with 630 people like we did back in Sydney in mid-July and stand down people and you can't give them clarity on when their their job's going to be back up or when they're going to have work again, that's just not a conversation you want to have. Like the human impact there, people have got mortgages, have got commitments. That's not something that any of us like to do. So if we can provide confidence around construction, whether that's vaccination rates or you know, RAT tests that might happen on a site to just keep construction open. That's the biggest thing that's taxing my mind at the moment. And then Zlatko, final question, you know, we're long-term investors here at Equity Mates and we like we like to think long-term. So if you think about uh, Borrell in 10 years, what does success look like? Well, mate, my um, successor, who will undoubtedly be a woman, um, will be focused on construction solutions. So as I said at the outset, you know, we probably would have historically defined ourselves as a concrete and asphalt business with cement and, and quarries. But, you know, what I'd really love to see Borrell in the future is a really diverse organisation that's got that solutions mindset and moving away from a focus on materials but solving customers' pain points right through, including sustainability, including you know, the focus in innovation that we've got and being a real partner with communities. If we can do that over the next decade, which I've got no doubt we can do, you know, everyone's passionate about that journey. That's where I'd love us to be. Was like, go, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but we certainly appreciate the time that you've given us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I know that a lot of uh, our community will have taken away a lot from that interview. It's always great to hear from the mouth of the CEO about how they're thinking about their company and, and, uh, building value for shareholders. So very much appreciate it. It was great fun. No, I appreciate the opportunity, guys. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. 
For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.